The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. After finishing the book of Philippians, we spent November looking through Psalms of Gratitude, but I'm thrilled this morning to begin December with you by expositing Matthew's gospel. We'll look through through the whole book. Lord willing, in January, we'll pause briefly to talk about the DNA of EBC, but I'm excited to be expositing through the gospel of Matthew with you. Have you ever been introduced to someone or met someone and it became apparent to you that there were some details that you were hearing out of order? I think it was last month or maybe two months ago, I drove home from church on a Friday afternoon Pulled my car in, drove up the driveway, opened the door, thinking about things going on in life. And as I walked to the backside of my car, there was a woman standing there, um, maybe about the age of my parents. And she was holding a hanger. And from that hanger, she was holding a black pair of dress pants. And before anything else could be said, she looked at me and said, I have a pair of black dress pants for you, and I'm sure they're your size. At that moment, three questions immediately popped into my head. First, who are you? Second, why are you giving me a black pair of dress pants? And third, how do you know my size? (laughs) How much have I been outside lately? I thought to myself. Um, And then without any further comment from me, these were all thoughts in my head, she then followed up by saying, I also have a pair of black dress shoes for your father-in-law, which made even less sense. (laughs) But then things started to click in in my head. My wife had told me that she had met one of our neighbors and gotten to know her and that she was going to bring some clothes nearby. But all of that was hitting my head out of order. So when you meet someone for the first time, the sequence of details really matters. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Holy Spirit has inspired Matthew to record what is the very Word of God, not just to write, but also to record in order what he wants us to know. In other words, the Holy Spirit not only enables people to be superintended authors, but also superintended editors. Now, the the title of today's sermon is Introducing the King. But how we read Matthew's Gospel is very important because he's introducing the King in a specific order of details. Now, let me just tell you this because... Um, normally growing up in church and hearing the Bible is a wonderful thing. Of course, I desire that for my own children. But the more familiar you are with Christmas and with the Gospel of Matthew, the more likely you are to not actually notice the details. I had a friend of mine who served in the Marines, but he had never held a gun before he served in the Marine Corps. And, and the Marines told him they love people like that because they don't have any bad habits. So when we are in the Gospel of Matthew, don't assume that you already know the details. Let's read them as they come. Look now in Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Wait, he's introducing us to Jesus. Why begin with a genealogy? Now there are three questions that if you're watching on live stream, you'll see scroll at the bottom of the TV, and if you have the notes I emailed to you, these are the three questions in red that I believe Matthew's going to answer. The first is, who is Jesus? He's introducing Jesus. Who is Jesus? The second we'll look at is, how does the introduction of Jesus affect your life? And the third is, why is he called Jesus? All right, those are the three questions we're going to look at today. The first, 
Who is Jesus? To answer that question, Matthew begins with a genealogy. He gives some background. A genealogy is a lineage. It's a record of ancestry. But why begin with a genealogy? I think there are a couple of reasons. The first one is to show that God keeps his promises. Now, let me bring your mind's eye back to something that seems unimaginable to the very beginning of history. The very beginning of history in the book of Genesis, God creates human beings, and human beings are intended to live forever. But then Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God. They disobey his commands. And then they realize that sin has collateral consequences, and chief among them is death, physically and eternally. But then God makes a wonderful promise. It's in Genesis 3, verse 15. God promises that there will be a child born who is able to crush the serpent, Satan, who had deceived Adam and Eve. And yes, that serpent will bruise this child's heel, but this child will crush the head of the serpent. Now that is why every believing woman for thousands of years, when they were pregnant and they had a child, they thought, could this be the child? So do you see why they're keeping genealogies? Could this be the kid? Could this be the kid? Now, there's something else that happens in a genealogy that, again, seems obvious to us. But it wasn't obvious originally. And that is that a genealogy records people dying. Which, when Adam and Eve were first formed into existence, there was no expectation of people dying. But as you read through the Old Testament, you'll read so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and he died. Who begat so-and-so, and he died. Now, if you're in Matthew 1... And you look in verse 2, you'll notice Abraham's the father of Isaac, Isaac's the father of Jacob, so they no longer include the phrase, and he died. Do you know why? Because everybody just assumed it at that point. Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So no longer is it even mentioned So genealogies exist to show, first, God keeps his promises, and he is going to send a special descendant, and second, that people die. But look now in Matthew 1. Look down in verse 16. I won't make you read all the names. (laughs) So here, near the end of the genealogy, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Did you know if you keep reading through the New Testament, you won't find any more genealogies? Why are the genealogies over? There were 39 Old Testament books of thousands of years of record-keeping of who had whom. Why not record it anymore? Here's why. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes and amen in Christ. Do you know also why there's no more genealogies? Because when it ends with this person who had this person and they died and they died and they died and then Jesus was born and then Jesus died, but unlike everybody else, then Jesus rose and conquered death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the next time you're reading the Old Testament at home, and you have a long list of names that you'd rather not try to pronounce, and you think, why wasn't this cut from the final copy? The answer is because the genealogy shows two things. God keeps his promises, and he will overcome death, and that happens in the Christ. So how someone is introduced is very, very important. Matthew begins with a genealogy. To answer his question, who is Jesus? I'll tell you who he is. He's the fulfillment of everything that's been promised beforehand. So now I'll go back to Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But now Matthew does something very interesting. Notice where he begins. Verse 1, he calls Jesus the son of David. Was that Jesus, his father's name? No. Why begin with David? Then next he says the son of Abraham. Is that the oldest ancestor? No, that'd be Adam. So why list David and list Abraham? This seems chronologically crazy. Because these are the two people through whom God made a special promise. God had promised Abraham that he would have a descendant. And through that descendant, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God had promised David that he would have a special descendant and his kingdom would last forever. See, that's why he begins calling Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham. Here, he's introducing to us not a normal person. He's introducing to us a king of kings and lord of lords who will reign and rule over this world. See, the names matter. Now continuing, verse 2. I guess I will read some of the names. (laughs) Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadab. Abinadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David by the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I need a breath. (laughs) If I was preaching this at seminary, I would spend two or three weeks on these verses. Today, I can only give you the cliff notes of it. Here are the cliff notes. Matthew does a lot of things that are very interesting. He includes women in his genealogy. Almost no one would ever do that. He includes Gentiles in his genealogy. No Jew would do that. He includes prostitutes, adulterers, notoriously sinful people in his genealogy who have come to grace through forgiveness. But all of these interesting tidbits is not the main reason the genealogy is interesting. It's interesting because Jesus is unlike all the others. Look now in verse 16 again, and notice it now carefully. Very quickly, I read, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, who's the father of so-and-so. But notice now verse 16. Jacob is the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Did you notice? This is the only time they said so-and-so is not the father of the child. Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He did not father Jesus. Jesus was born of Mary. This leads us to an obvious question, and again, make yourself pretend you've never heard the Bible, because then you'll read it better, (laughs) all right? So pretend you don't know how the story's going to turn out. You would obviously be asking this question then. Wait, if Joseph didn't father Jesus, how did he come into existence? That would be the obvious question you would ask, and now that's what the Bible's going to explain. 
The Christmas narrative is still answering the question, who is Jesus? Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Here's the most significant advent in all of history. Here's how it happened. Verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We need to understand what betrothal is so we can appreciate the tension in this passage. Betrothal is nothing like our American engagement period. Nothing. Betrothal is exceedingly serious. In fact, when two people are betrothed to be married, the only way for that to end is either through marriage or formal legal divorce. You can't just hop in and out of it. It's an extremely serious thing. A dowry's been paid. Two people have publicly, legally bound themselves to one another. Also, though, Betrothal is a time where though two people are legally bound to each other, they are not yet married and they do not yet engage in sexual activity with one another. In fact, that's actually the purpose of betrothal, to have a period of time to show the chastity of these two people. So verse 18 tells us here are two people who are betrothed and they have not come together and yet one of them is pregnant. How would they handle that? The, the marriage normally would end with the husband bringing his bride home after a week of wedding ceremony. So verse 18, here's Mary. She's pregnant. She's betrothed in an extremely serious legally binding relationship. So what's going to happen now? Verse 18 continues, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We as the reader know this. Joseph does not yet know this. So now pick up in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, maybe you read that and you think, that sounds really harsh. But think about the context again. This is a period in which betrothal is extremely serious. It's a legally binding relationship. And also infidelity is extremely serious. It's something that would be taken very seriously by the law and by the court. And Joseph does not know how her conception has happened. His only logical assumption would be that she's been unfaithful to him. And verse 18 says she was found with child, which is a way of saying she was visibly pregnant. If we do the timeline from Luke's gospel, she'd be about four months along at this point. So now let's continue. Verse 19, Joseph noticed two qualities about him. He is just, and yet he is unwilling to go too far in his justice. Joseph is just. He knows justice requires him to deal honestly with someone who's been unfaithful. But Joseph also is merciful. He's unwilling to throw the full book of the law against Mary. Instead, his desire is for her to not be put notice to shame. It was uncommon in the first century, but you had legal ground to actually stone to death someone who was adulterous to you. Joseph didn't pursue that extent. His desire was for this to end without shame to Mary. This tells us something about Joseph's character, but I think it's actually meant to foreshadow God's character. God is just. He knows when something is wrong and that it must be addressed. But praise God, God is also merciful and not willing to crush us under the full weight that our sin 
deserves, and instead he's provided a way of sacrifice. Of course, that's what this chapter is beginning to reveal, that there is someone who God has sent who can come and take what our shame deserves. But in this situation, Joseph gives us a window into that character. But now notice verse 20. But as he considered these things, don't let the word considered make you think he wasn't sure because notice the verse 19 said he resolved. So I'm going to divorce her and I'm just thinking through how to do it. Verse 20, as he's considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, an important reminder of the lineage of Christ, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a remarkable statement, and try to put yourself in his sandals for a moment. You're thinking, here's this person that I love who obviously has been unfaithful to me, but I'm going to try to put our relationship aside in the most quiet and non-shameful way to her as I possibly can. And now you hear that actually God is the one behind all of this. So pause, and now we're ready to answer question number two. Question number one was, who is Jesus? Now question number two, how does the entrance of Jesus into people's lives affect their lives? So far, from what you have from Matthew 1, if Jesus comes into your life, is it a comfortable and convenient thing? Is it an easy thing that doesn't ripple anything in your life or upset any of your plans? I mean, have you ever paused to wonder, why did God do it this way? It ruined both of their reputations. For the rest of their life, Joseph and Mary would both be thought of poorly. Many women, a wedding is the most exciting part of their life. I have a young daughter at home, and on several occasions I've come home, and she has set out for me on the kitchen counter um, a certificate for marriage, and it, she wrote her name and wrote my name. She even had two rings sitting there when I came home. <laughs> and I came home, and we went downstairs, and we lined up row by row all of her stuffed animals, and we turned on the music, and we walked her down the aisle, and we tried to have one of my sons officiate. It was a short wedding, trust me. <laughs> but even at her young age, she's already dreaming about what her beautiful wedding will look like, and hopefully one day, 40 years from now, we'll cash in on it. <laughs> <laughs> but Mary didn't get the picturesque wedding that a little girl dreams of because her reputation was sullied because God asked her to do something difficult. So pause and think for a second. When Jesus enters your life, is it convenient, comfortable, and easy? Why do we think it is? We have so hallmark movied Matthew that when we come to think about Christmas, we think about hot cocoa and a warm fire and everything's easy. The original Christmas upset everybody's lives who interacted with Jesus. And yet Christians, in America especially, tend to think that if I follow Jesus, it'll never have any discomfort or inconvenience or strain. In fact, when Jesus enters your life, it is gloriously wonderful, but it is radically different than you would have been otherwise. How could it not be? The Son of God has come to you. In fact, if Jesus enters your life, you can never be the same. Mary and Joseph will now face shame because Jesus has entered their life. 
But who really bears their shame? When Jesus grows up to be an adult, he'll be called a bastard and illegitimate child by many of his opponents. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the Jewish religious leaders will call him Beelzebub, claiming that he works for Satan himself. He will spend his entire life falsely accused and having shame put on him that he does not deserve. In fact, this was prophesied about him. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter is silent, and a sheep before its shearers is silent, so Jesus opened not his mouth. We are falsely accused and we want to prove our honor, and yet probably a percentage of the accusation is true. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived that not a single bad thing said about him had any percentage of truth, and yet on trial before Pilate, he refused to defend himself. And then, in fact, Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and speak against you and persecute you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. First Peter 2 tells us, even to this were you called. Christ set an example for us to follow, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Christian, are you expecting following Christ to be comfortable and convenient? Are you expecting it to be easy? How are you responding when we don't fit in the world perfectly? When people maybe even say false things about us? Joseph and Mary bear shame But they only bear it temporarily because their son came to bear it eternally. I love the hymn, Man of Sorrows. Verse 2 says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is the Savior being referred to here. Yes, following Jesus has elements of it that are easy and wonderful. In Matthew 11, Jesus will famously say, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Following Jesus in some ways is very easy. You're freed of guilt. You're freed of fear. You're secured eternally. But in Matthew 10, Jesus will say, But if you're not willing to leave father and mother or brother or sister, don't even follow me. How can it be both? Following Jesus is both the easiest thing, gloriously, and it is also the most inconvenient, discomfortable, and radical thing because following Jesus is greater than anything this world offers, and it will oppose you while you follow him. And we see this from Matthew 1. But this leads us now to verse 21. So the angel tells Joseph in verse 20, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. But now verse 21, the angel continues to speak to Joseph and now says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Dr. Charles Quarles teaches at Southeastern in his helpful book on Matthew. He writes this about discovering the central message. He writes, most scholars regard Matthew 121 as the programmatic statement of the gospel. Do, do you know what that means? If you're writing a document, especially for school, and you're writing a paper, you, you're supposed to have a thesis statement that encapsulates what you are about to develop or contend for. Matthew 121 is the thesis statement of the whole book. Here's the point of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus will save his people from their sins. 
It is the heart of the book, and the rest of the book is going to expand it. So let's pause on it for a moment. And now we can answer question number three. Why is he called Jesus? And I'll give four observations from this one packed verse. Why is he called Jesus? Jesus, I know well because my parents named me Joshua, and my middle name is Christopher. How is that for a Christian name? Right? <laughs> Joshua is Hebrew for Yeshua, which which means Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. The the name Jesus literally means the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your English translation, saves. So now let me make four observations from this wonderful verse. Why is he called Jesus? First, because he saves. What does it mean to save? It means to deliver from certain deserved consequences and righteous judgment. Notice how I phrased it from deserved consequences. Can I tell you something that that drives me nuts? Very often, I'll be listening to someone else preach, and they'll say, hey, you know what save means? It's like, you know, you're you're drowning, and and then someone reaches in the water and pulls you out. Or, you know what save means? It's like you're playing in your backyard in your tree fort, and you, you, like a a branch breaks, and then your dad catches you. That's what saves means. No, no, that's, that's not at all what save means. In those illustrations, it makes it sound like we're innocent and things just fell apart and we're great people, but hey, you know, somebody snatched us. That is not at all what the Bible means. Look in verse 21. We're being saved from our sins. For it to be an accurate illustration, it would have to sound something like this. Your dad told you not to drive his car and you said, Dad, I hate you. And you took his keys and you got in the car and you drove away and then you saw the flashing lights and they pulled you over. And while the police officer was walking to your door, you wanted to be saved. See, salvation is never something that just befalls innocent people. Otherwise, why would this Savior go to a cross? Salvation is something necessary for guilty people, and that's all of us. To save means to be rescued from deserved consequence. So then we have to ask, who does God save? Look in verse 21. He will save his people. I'll quote Dr. Quarles again. Dr. Quarles writes, At first one might assume that his people refers to the Jewish nation, but the promise will save indicates that Jesus' true people are those whom he does save who believe in him. If you know Matthew's gospel well, you know that in Matthew 1, we read, here's the king. But in Matthew 28, we read that this king who came to his people were rejected by his people. So Matthew 28 ends with, go tell the world. So what happened between those 27 chapters? His people rejected him and nailed him to a cross. The Jewish religious leaders accusing him falsely. So who are God's people? They're not an ethnic group. They're not a nationality. They're those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. They're made gods through faith, through believing in God's Son. Let me ask you this morning. Are you his people? Are you saved? A word that's become increasingly culturally laughed at, but it's the biblical word for our situation apart from God. We face certain damnation or by God's grace through faith in Christ, we receive salvation. Have you? That's why he came. Look in verse 21 again. I'll make a third observation. Let's double click on the word from that preposition. We are saved from something. 
We're saved from three things about sin that theologians usually talk about. Sin's penalty, sin's power, and sin's presence. Sin's penalty is eternal, isolated separation from God and others in conscious torment over our sin. Jesus saves us from that. Sin's power is the grip that sin has that enslaves us to think and act and behave in ways that are bad. Jesus breaks us from that. Sin's presence is what destroys the world and is why the world is broken and is why our bodies get old and die and decompose. Sin's presence, Jesus saves us also from that. But now notice, finally, my observation from verse 21. Notice the pronoun there. He saves his people from their sins. Notice they're not his sins. Jesus has never sinned. He's been tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. See, Jesus doesn't need to die for himself. He's never done anything wrong, but he can die for those of us who have, all of us. Because of his innocence. Do you know what then this verse is telling us? It's telling us that the problem is in us. And the solution is outside of us. Let me say that again because you won't hear that anywhere else. The problem is in us and the only solution is outside of us. Have you noticed how sometimes people even use Jesus in a way contrary for the very reason and purpose of his name? Some people think humanity's deepest problem is that we have low self-esteem. And maybe Jesus can help us feel better about ourselves. Joel Osteen has made a lot of money saying that. But God did not send Jesus to give us greater self-esteem. He sent Jesus to save us from our sin. A lot of people also think that our greatest need is self-actualization or self-fulfillment. As if after 39 books of the Old Testament, the first book of the New Testament would be eat, pray, love. (laughs) But Jesus was not sent to be our life coach and to help us pursue our never satisfied inner voice. He's sent to save us from our sin. Some people get a little closer to the truth, which is why it's even more dangerous. And they think, well, you know what the problem in the world is? People aren't moral enough. They're not religious enough. They don't have religious traditions. And so maybe that's why God sent Jesus, so we could light a candle and pray to some image and then do some you know, religious traditions, and maybe then we'll be better people. If you've never noticed that doing religious traditions doesn't change your heart, read anything by Flannery O'Connor and laugh yourself silly. <laughs> and you will notice what the Bible is saying so clearly, that God did not come because we're good people who just need an assist God came because we're bad people, dead in our sins, who Jesus will save. God sent a Savior from sin. That's why he named his son Jesus. Praise God, Jesus is infinitely more than a nice teacher, a good role model, a therapeutic life coach, or a political example. He is the Savior of sinners. See, what is fundamentally wrong with us is we are sinners, What hope is there? None within us. But praise God, Jesus came from beyond, and he comes to those who are desperately in need. Verse 22 and 23 tell us that God himself entered our story. Verse 22, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now, I love the way Matthew 1 ends because it puts all three of my questions together. First, who is Jesus? Second, how does it affect your life if Jesus enters your life? And third, why is he called Jesus? These all now crystallize into the response of Joseph. Look in verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph obeyed God's word, even though it was incredibly inconvenient and costly to him. Notice the next phrase in verse 24. He took his wife. That's massive. He is going to marry Mary, even though for him that's going to mean shame and dishonor and probably the loss of business as a carpenter. But he obeys God's word, no matter how costly it is. Verse 25, he knew her not. Even though they come together, he does not sleep with her because he perpetuates her virginity. He carries out what the Lord has called him and her to do. Afterwards, they have children, but until Jesus is born, he waits. The verse continues, and this is my favorite part, verse 25. And he called his name Jesus. In our culture, we talk about unwanted pregnancies. Here God has given to Joseph a son that he did not father and a name that he did not choose. Why would then Joseph call Jesus the name that God told him to call him? Here's why. Did you know the first Christians are not the 12 disciples? The first Christians are Mary and Joseph. In Luke's gospel, Mary cries out, My soul rejoices in God my Savior. And here Joseph calls his son Jesus because he is his own Savior too. By the end of the gospels, we never read Joseph's name again. Most scholars believe that's because Joseph had died by the time Jesus was an adult. And so what a wonderful insight in this Christmas narrative into the radical faith of those who trust in Jesus. Here Joseph, his own father, submits himself to his earthly son because he knows he's his King of Kings, Lord and Savior. So how about you? Is Jesus your Savior? Are you his people? And second, have you been wrongly thinking that Jesus coming into your life would never possibly upset, discomfort, or inconvenience you? Have you forgotten that when the King of Kings enters your life, your life is gloriously, radically altered, and it can never be the same? We see that from the very beginning of Matthew, and we'll see it throughout the text. This is how Matthew introduces the King. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. God, this passage contains some things that we don't like admitting, that we are sinners. But Lord, if we won't admit that, there is no hope for us. No hope. We will be miserable in life and much more miserable in death if we refuse to acknowledge that we are sinners without any hope in ourselves. But Lord, I thank you that that bad news to our proud ears is actually good news because Jesus has come to save us from our sins. Lord, thank you that you sent a way for us to be rescued rather than leaving us to rot. Thank you that all the promises you made from Eve all the way through Isaiah 7.14 were fulfilled when Jesus came. 
Thank you that death no longer has fear for the Christian. No longer do we worry about its sting because the genealogy ends with Jesus who rose from the dead. But Lord, also as Christians, especially honestly American Christians, we sometimes hallmark movie the Bible in such a way that we don't expect any inconvenience or discomfort with the entrance of Jesus into our life. And yet in chapter 1, Mary and Joseph can never live the same life they would have lived. But why would they want to? And why would we? If we get to know Jesus, then our affections change and our desires change and we don't mind swimming upstream in a downstream culture because we know the eternal King of Kings and what He's called us to is infinitely greater. Lord, enable us then to live lives by the power of Christ that may look radical to other people, but are actually normal because they understand who the real king is. Thank you for this book, Introducing the King to Us. I pray now for anyone watching who hasn't claimed the king as their savior, please don't let anyone leave without calling out to Jesus for salvation. In his beautiful name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.